Welcome to the Compliance Time AML and Financial Crime Podcast. Here, you can learn from compliance experts, enthusiasts and creators who are contributing to the fast-moving and dynamic field of financial compliance. Hello everyone and welcome to Compliance Time. Today we have a very interesting episode on export controls with a fantastic guest, Donald Pierce. This episode was recorded prior to the Russian invasion in Ukraine when new sanctions and export controls were introduced and surely we will try to have a separate discussion with Donald on that. But first, let me introduce my guest. Donald Pierce is a retired special agent from the US Commerce Department's Bureau of Industry and Security and a subject matter expert in strategic trade control policy, transnational criminal investigations and national security issues. He provides real-world solutions and guidance to companies and governments on security and compliance strategies, due diligence research and successfully implementing and navigating multilateral trade controls. Before his retirement in 2020, Don served as the acting unit chief for liaison and interdiction, providing subject matter expertise to international organizations, other government agencies and industry worldwide. His career included prosecuting precedent-setting cases, establishing the regional export control officer position at the U.S. Embassy in Singapore, coordinating successful interdictions of dangerous goods, and protecting the international supply chain through successful public-private cooperative efforts. Mr. Pierce received the Commerce Department Gold Medal for his role in a complex criminal investigation that dismantled Iranian procurement network provided components for using improvised explosive devices. Mr. Pierce was awarded the Commerce Department Silver Medal for Investigative Excellence and the U.S. Department of Justice Executive Assistant Attorney General's Award as a case agent in the PPG Industries investigation which uncovered a conspiracy to supply specialty coatings for an unauthorized nuclear end use in Pakistan. The case resulted in record-setting fines and a guilty plea by the Chinese state-owned enterprise a first in the U.S. jurisprudence. He also uh, he has also been awarded the Commerce Department Gold Medal for his participation in protection operations for the Secretary of Commerce during the, his 2003 visits to Iraq and Afghanistan, and a bronze medal recognizing his significant contributions to the Exports Control Officer Program. Additionally, Donald is not only a dynamic public speaker who has delivered keynote addresses, case studies and panel presentations worldwide to various audiences. He has developed training scenarios based on actual events, acted as MC and moderator in various government and private programs and most recently delivered content via virtual conferences and small group appearances. Further. Don established Sentinel LLC to provide guidance that keeps companies safe, compliant and prosperous. You can subscribe for Sentinel's newsletter for an outstanding intelligence report. Uh, there will be a link in the show notes. And now let's hear from Don. Hi Don and welcome to Compliance Time. I'm really happy to host our discussion today and talk about so many topics in the sanctions and experts control environment. Well, thank you for having me, and it's uh, it's a pleasure to to speak to you and your audience. Thank you, absolutely. So, tell us now a bit about yourself and your career with compliance, and what did you do so far? So, uh, thirty 
four years ago, I stumbled into the custom service as a clerk in a special stay in school program where I was hired at the GS1 step one lowest level of the government. And it was also my introduction to export control as I ended up working as a clerk on the Exodus unit at JFK airport and was the custom services outbound examinations team. I had never realized just how important export controls were to customs and you know, to national security before that point. So with that, um, with that beginning, I continued to climb the ladder at customs. I became an inspector and worked outbound investigations. In fact, um, was one of the, the founding members of the JFK outbound enforcement team, which grew significantly from the time when I was a clerk and uh, then transferred to the Commerce Department as a criminal investigator with the Office of Export Enforcement in New York. Uh, worked criminal cases at the field level, um, strictly on dual-use export controls under the Export Administration regulations. Eventually got a posting as an export control officer, first in the U.S. Embassy in Moscow from 2004 to 2007, and then in Singapore from 2010 to 2015. And in that role, I was doing end-use verifications overseas to ensure that U.S. goods were where they were supposed to be and doing what they were supposed to be doing. After that, I had a lot of fun in the field, and at some point, they catch up to you and they make you come to headquarters. But luckily, my headquarters tour, uh, my last five years of my uh, career, uh, was actually quite enjoyable as I was working as a liaison officer, working with other government agencies and international organizations in providing information that the United States felt these organizations could use, and in return, bringing back information that could bolster criminal investigations or help to form policy uh, decisions back at headquarters. And I retired on February 29th, 2020, and uh, started a, a, a small consultancy uh, called Sentinel LLC. I'm still running it on the side. It is uh, uh, subject matter expertise uh, uh, boutique consultancy, and uh, I publish a daily news roundup called the Sentinel Situation Report. And uh, just in January of this year, I uh, signed on with Torres Trade Advisory to become their uh, uh, senior advisor. And uh, we do the more traditional trade compliance work, training. And uh, if a company does have an issue which might require, say, a uh, voluntary self-disclosure, we can help out with that. And uh, Torres Trade Advisory also puts out a, a newsletter on a fairly regular basis. And uh, we'd like to keep our clients and pretty much anyone who wants to sign up informed as to the latest changes to U.S. export controls or uh, the impacts of cybersecurity-related regulations on, on U.S. companies or companies abroad. That's fantastic. So I'm going to include the links uh, to Sentinel LLC website and then you know, people, so people can find it and subscribe uh, into our show notes. Um, so you will have to just send me those after our Excellent. discussion. Well yeah. Um, and you, you are such an expert in um, export controls. 
But for the people that are not that much into it or are not that aware, can we talk a little bit about what um, the strategy of the US government with export controls is and what is the function in the financial institutions or non-financial institutions of an export controls officer? Absolutely. So first, there are several US-based export control regulations. The the ones that affect the most exporters would be the State Department's International Traffic and Arms Regulations, or ITAR, and the Commerce Department's Export Administration Regulations, or EAR. In fact, you'll know if someone is an export compliance expert if they refer to it as the EAR and not the EAR. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. So the, the EAR is my forte, so I'll focus most of our conversation on that, but there are many parallels in the State Department's um, uh, uh, ITAR regulations, and there are also regulations around more specialized goods, such as uh, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission uh, has certain uh, items in the, uh, in the nuclear fuel supply to, uh, that, that they regulate. Um, certain um, chemicals are regulated by the Drug Enforcement Administration as precursors, but the vast majority of items exported from the United States are going to be subject to the Export Administration regulations. And the interesting thing about that is the United States um, has an, uh, the idea of extraterritorial jurisdiction, meaning that if something is on the Export Administration regulations and was exported from the United States, or in some cases was developed using significant U.S. goods or technology, we consider it to be subject to the EAR wherever it is on the planet. That does sound scary, but I, but I want to put you at ease in that as long as the items aren't being diverted to an unauthorized end use or end user, this is probably never going to have to occur to you. Other than perhaps to show the item to a, uh, a U.S. Uh, officer conducting an end-use verification. That was honestly my favorite part of the job because I felt like I was a, a professional tourist. Um, but instead of going to the traditional tourist sites, I was dressing up in a bunny suit and going to a fab to make sure that a particular <laughs> item was sitting there. All right. So, as a um, as an officer that's inspecting this item, you had to visit what? Which stage you were visit? At which stage you were visiting the item? So, in that case, it depended on which type of check we were doing. Uh, the U.S. government generally does pre-license checks or post-shipment verifications on U.S. goods or technology that have been exported or subject to the uh, U.S. foreign uh, product uh, uh, rules. And in the pre-license check, you would often meet with the company, obviously, before they received the goods. So in those cases, it was a, a more general meeting with perhaps the uh, staff that would be using a particular good or technology, and perhaps a, a walkthrough of the facility where it was going to be placed. And the things that the export control officer is looking for in those cases is basic security, access control, 
and whether or not the facility appears to be yeah, it's as it would have been described in a licensed transaction. So if you were to walk into a factory that says it did no military work, and meanwhile, 75% of the things you're seeing are in green wooden boxes, stenciled army, <laughs> you might have a question as to why this civilian uh, organization is producing something that is labeled army. The post-shipment verification is, as stated, after the item has shipped. Now, that can be several days or weeks after the item has shipped, or in some cases, up to three or four years after the item has shipped. So by then, it should probably be installed. And in most cases, when we schedule these end-use verifications, we like to do them after the item has been installed. Um, just so that we can see where it is. And in most cases, it's exactly where it's supposed to be and doing what it's supposed to be doing based on the license transaction. In the cases where that might not be the case, um, it may mean that your, your meeting is much shorter because there's nothing to look at. And in some cases, your meeting is very short because the location that they told you the item was at is a green field. And oh. that's where the investigations begin. Because frankly, these checks, they're first of all, voluntary. And second of all, administrative in nature. They are to ensure that the U.S. export control system is working the way it's supposed to. It's not an investigation. Now, the information that comes out of these checks may indicate a, uh, a, a, a violation of the export administration regulations. And at that point, the information is transferred over to the folks that do the criminal investigations. But the export control officers overseas, they're not cops. They're diplomats. And the idea that, um, that many companies uh, uh, have in their head is that if somebody's coming to look at my stuff, they must suspect me of wrongdoing. <laughs> and that's not the case in, I would say, the vast majority of end-use verifications. It's kind of like hitting the lottery, actually, because when you look at how many transactions go out of the United States on a weekly or monthly basis, and the analysts having to sort through all of those transactions to find the ones that are significant enough to warrant an end-use check, that's, uh, you, you, you kind of got lucky. You know, although I'd rather win the lottery than get an end-use check, but the end-use check can be fun. At least, at least you get to meet someone at the, from the embassy. How, has it ever happened that you ended up in a green field when there was nothing to check um, for such item? I, uh, this is one of my favorite stories. Go ahead, tell us. While I was uh, working overseas on what the, the Commerce Department calls a sentinel trip, which is when we send agents um, to be basically temporary export control officers to countries where we don't have a presence, we had attempted to set up a, uh, a check. And the way these checks are set up all over the world is essentially the same. A uh, representative from the local embassy will reach out to the company 
and ask for a good time to come over and meet and, you know, and, you know explain to them the end use verification process. And if it's a post shipment verification request permission to see the goods and be able to maybe take a photograph or, you know, at least record the serial number. And I very rarely do you end up um, getting a no on that. I have to admit it's, most companies are more than happy to show you how they make their magic. <clears throat> and if, if you start getting pushback, there's usually one of three reasons. The first reason is a misunderstanding. Again, what do you think I'm a criminal? And then you can talk your way through that one. The second is uh, misinformation, which is, they don't realize that what you want to do is look at the particular item. And so they set up the meeting at, you know, corporate headquarters. And when you get to the point where you say, so can I see the things they say, Oh, I'm sorry. It's, it's at the factory, you know, six miles from here. And you know, they, we can't, we, we need to um, get you a safety uh, briefing before we could get you in and okay, no problem. We can come back and do it again, <laughs> but maybe next time let's meet there. And the third is where it's truly an issue of concern, which in this example, when we called, we, you know, we were able to identify that the phone number was a cellular telephone. And whenever we would call, it would go to a voicemail and we would leave a message. And we're trying to do this two or three weeks ahead before we get on an airplane. Eventually, someone calls us back and tells the, uh, the, the embassy official that they'd be more than happy to meet with us, but they can't this week because, and let's face it, we're only in that country for a week, so bad timing, right? <laughs> oh, mm -hmm. okay. Well, you know, can we uh, at least have the address um, and, and, you know, just in case you're your time frees up, maybe, maybe we can, you know, we can give you a, uh, we can drop you an email or we can call you and, and give us an email address um, from a, from a, 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 a free email service. Okay. So I'm not going to say that this is unusual. There are many companies that use um, a free email service because they're trying to watch every penny. So cellular telephone, free email, we go to the location that the item was delivered to. And it's, it's a, an office building, but it's under construction. <laughs> there are no offices there yet. We kind of can't believe our eyes, so we get out and we go to the buildings on either side and we check the registries and this company isn't listed. And we go into the the construction guys and we you know, say, Hey, um, is there a list of the companies that are going to be in here? You know, long shot. Right. And of course there isn't, but they give us the phone number of the rental agent that is renting out all of the spaces that are going to be finished in like six weeks or something. So we, we finished our, the rest of our day and we you know, sit down and on our way to our next checks in the morning, we call this rental agency and we bounce the name of this company off of them. And they said, oh yeah, they had, uh, they had reserved something, but, um, but they canceled. <laughs> so <laughs> now we have 
a cellular telephone, a throwaway email address, and they used a uh, construction site as a drop. <laughs> that was an unfavorable report. So that would be the kind of thing that would end up being referred for criminal investigation. And in this case, um, I don't know what the ultimate uh, disposition of that case was because, you know, so first of all, it was many years ago when I was still on the job. And, uh, and second of all, the, that's not a lot to go on. So it could have been a very complicated investigation. It would require uh, cooperation from a local control, export control authority which in some places there is not one, or at least getting the, the attention and the uh, desire of a local police agency to look into something that depending on the availability of an investigator and frankly, the availability of an applicable law. So in many places there aren't equivalent export control laws. That's uh, one of the reasons why when sometimes you see a, 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 an extradition to the United States from a foreign country uh, on an export control case that they don't charge the export control related violations. They charge it as defrauding the government because you have to have a like crime. So if the country doesn't have a dual use export control system with a criminal penalty, you can't use the violation of the export administration regulations as the reason for extradition. But you can say that someone filed paperwork with the U.S. government saying that the item was going to stay in that country, but that item did not stay in that country, and that is fraud. And there is a law in the United States that says you're not allowed to lie to the government. And in most countries, there is a like law that says you're not allowed to lie to their government. <laughs> and that makes it a lot easier to, to prosecute. Wow, that that's really interesting. Um, I, I'm uh, I'm wondering what has happened also with that company that rented and canceled their uh, <laughs> their um, office. I hope I hope it was not serious item, very very terribly bad that leads to bad consequences. No. But so the 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 thing that that allows me to go to sleep at night. <laughs> especially with that case is that in many of these cases it's a one-off meaning you know they they got away with it once and mm -hmm. although you know closing the barn door after the horse escapes isn't the greatest solution at least only one horse got out and it also allows us to use examples like that so that companies that are doing business in the dual use space especially with items that might be sensitive can be alert to that. You know, if, you're, if your potential client is using a Gmail address and a, a, cell, and a cell phone number, maybe ask why, or at least ask a little bit more about the history of the organization, the history of the company. Mm -hmm. I, uh, I recently had a, a client ask me to do some due diligence background on a company that they had planned on partnering with. And I, the first thing I did was I went to their website and then I went to the uh, domain registry to see how long they've had that website. And the website had been set up three months ago. But meanwhile, they were talking about how they had years of experience. Now, all right, you know, not maybe, maybe they had a, maybe they never had a web presence or maybe this is just a new provider and maybe they changed their URL because they got something new. There are lots of reasons why that might happen, but you have to ask. And yeah. the, 
the 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 essence of due diligence, um, whether it's doing know your client um, or know your customer uh, research at a bank or even just trying to learn more about your customers so that you can sell them more things is understanding what their particular circumstances are. And the best way to do that is, in my opinion, getting boots on the ground and actually seeing something. Now, that might not be possible with every client you have. And with the United States government, it's obviously not going to be able to check every transaction leaving the United States. But if you do enough of them and you find the places where the system isn't working, you can fine tune. Um, these are great tips, especially about the due diligence side. Um, we need to be really diligent when we have new customers or when we have new um, buyers or whatever it is. Um, and as you mentioned, there are many also regular reasons why you would have a Gmail address or why, uh, why your website is so new, why you're supposed to be working for 10 years in the industry and what, you didn't have web presence. It's important how you frame the questions to these customers or these um, prospective clients that um, you're planning to onboard. So not to be predetermined that, okay, this is this is something for sure suspicious because it's the Gmail address. Um, yes, I, there, there is definitely a delicate dance of diplomacy in having to ask some of the harder questions. And frankly, the more you interact with companies um, and the more you understand, say, the small to medium enterprise uh, companies that might need to cut these corners, the easier it is to frame those questions in a way that doesn't make people feel like they're being interrogated. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that does the thing, the feeling of being interrogated or that they did something wrong. Um, that, that's often in the, the bank setting, you know, uh, people may get defensive if you frame your question wrong when you want to ask some due diligence piece. And I think the best piece of advice I can give to anyone who finds themselves having to do a form of end-use verification with a client is I would often be welcomed into a company and say, we are ready for our audit. <laughs> and my response would always be, audit is a very strong word for what I am here to do today. Because this isn't an audit. You know, we are not looking for problems. What we are looking for is ensuring that the U.S. export control system is working the way it's supposed to. And as the ultimate end user of a U.S. good or technology, you are the perfect place to start to make sure that if it was a license, that the U.S. exporter advised you of the conditions of that license. And... Also to check to see if you had problems. Did you have problems importing it because it had a license? Was there any type of um, undue pressure <laughs> to, to, to get this item into country? Um, we, we like to know that because we can also bring that into the Commerce Department to ensure that legitimate traders and legitimate end users aren't being subjected to uh, practices that are going to make them not want to buy, or not want to import, not want to go through this again. Did If the license took three months when it 
should have taken 45 days, there's probably a reason. And if we can find out that one of the reasons was they weren't sure about the end user and we can now send them literally a, a story about exactly how they're using the items, that next license should fly right through because the licensing officer doesn't have to doubt it. Somebody actually went out there and made sure these people were legitimate. That, that's a, a great advice and a, a great perspective to know that um, once you prove yourself a, as a legitimate person, it, it gets easier. Um, let's uh, talk a little bit about the end users and the end user verification program. Um, what that is and, you know, from your experience, how this end user lists work for the government? So um, I, will, I will start by saying that the, the lists are an interesting topic for me. Um, as I mentioned before, we had this uh, unfavorable check where it turned out that this company didn't really seem to exist. And this is the perfect type of company to be placed on one of the Commerce Department's lists. The one that is the easiest to put, be put on and the easiest to come off of is called the unverified list. And the unverified list basically means I tried to do an end use verification and you didn't let me. Uh, there was a recent uh, addition of 33 companies in China to the unverified list because they have not been able to complete end use verifications. Now, some of the open source press information about the listings um, seem to indicate that at least one of the companies is ready, willing, and able to allow someone to come in. And that perhaps this is all a misunderstanding over COVID-related restrictions for travel and for uh, entering uh, certain premises. And if that's the case, this should probably end very quickly because what will happen is the U.S. and its uh, partners in region will try to affect the check. And then once the check is done, they'll send a cable back to Washington and the folks that put them on the unverified list can take them off. Now, in between, because of course this is a bureaucratic process, so even if those checks happen tomorrow, they're going to be on the list for a while until they can get the publication in the Federal Register that removes them from the list. So in, that, in the meantime, they'll have to, they'll have to do a little enhanced uh, due diligence the company in the United States will have to secure a uh, promise that if for the next transaction we request an end-use verification, that they'll let us come and do it. You know, so that's a, it's a, you know, a piece of paper with a, a signature and maybe a chop or a seal on it, sure. <laughs> and the only downside to it is they won't be able to use a license exception. They'll have to use... Uh, they'll have to come in for a license. In, in the case in the press, this isn't really a big deal because the items that they are receiving generally require a license to China. So it doesn't even add a step. I often say that the unverified list is the Commerce Department equivalent of getting caught in a speed trap and getting a traffic ticket because <laughs> you're 
you're not going to lose your business over this. You're likely going to have to do a little bit more work and maybe wait a little longer if normally you use a license exception, but you're still going to be able to get U.S. goods and technology. The, uh, the problem for U.S. exporters is that many of them can't differentiate between the lists. The, the big brother to the unverified list is the entity list. And the entity list is different. In order to be placed on the entity list, a company has to uh, be acting contrary to the national security or foreign policy interests of the United States. So think allowing things to go to a sanctioned entity or a sanctioned country or to a terrorist. You know, that is a level of information that gets you on the entity list. And the entity list has much more severe consequences. In most cases, an entity listing will mean that any item subject to the Export Administration regulations will require a license, whether it be a tricycle or a, uh, a, a microchip. And in most cases, it will be a presumption of denial on that license. So in other words, you can come in and ask us for a license, but we're probably not going to give it to you. In some cases, an entity list organization can get a license if the need for that good or technology uh, has a, a, more, a more pressing national security or foreign policy interest, then the United States might approve it. But at the especially small to medium enterprise level, if they think you're on a government list, regardless of if it's a Commerce Department list or the Treasury Department's lists of specially designated nationals or the State Department's debarred list or any of these other lists that the U.S. government is um, promoting to help companies to not do business that would be contrary to U.S. foreign policy. They just decide that everyone is on a list and being on a list has to be terrible. <laughs> and they're not going to do business with them. Absolutely, yeah. And no one's really correcting them on things like the unverified list where, yeah, you know, something went wrong, but it's something that can be easily solved. And it doesn't, it was never intended to stop a company in its tracks. It was intended to um, just give companies an opportunity to turn this into a success story by putting a little bit more public pressure on actually complying with an end use check. And I think for the most part, my history with the unverified list is, uh, is, is fairly positive from the government side in that companies that um, were nominated for entry that on, onto the uh, unverified list that I had been trying to do end use checks at normally allowed those checks to happen. So at the end of the day, that means they came off the list. And that's the way this is supposed to work. Now, of course, it moves at the speed of government. So, you know, it might take a couple of months, but it's still, um, it, it's not intended to shut companies down. The Commerce Department isn't in the business of putting businesses out of business. They're in the business of putting proliferators out of business. Has it ever happened that somebody on the unverified list graduated to the entity list? 
yes, that does happen. And, and, and we'll, we can use my little um, uh, uh, potential diversion uh, story as, as kind of a guide as to how that would happen. So when we found that this you know, office didn't really exist yet, we sent an unfavorable uh, report to the analysts at, at Commerce Headquarters that handled this program. And they would send a referral to the investigators. Now, the investigators might find information that would lead them to believe that this company, or maybe an individual uh, related to the company, perhaps, the, perhaps that cell phone also came up in another investigation that maybe is, has progressed a little bit further down the road, and they can show that this company was involved in another situation where they may have gotten items and diverted them, or um, they may have uh, lied on a license application or provided false information on, on export documents. In that case, you can go and show that continuing to do business with this individual or this company could pose a national security threat. Or at the very least, since you already know that they, they play loose and fast with the rules, it might be contrary to the foreign policy interests of the United States. And in that case, you can make a nomination to the entity list. And those nominations go to an organization in, in the Bureau of Industry and Security called the End User Review Committee. And that committee has members from the State Department, the Defense Department, and other organizations that have an interest and they decide whether or not you have made the case that this organization or this person um, constitutes uh, a, an unnecessary risk. And if they agree with you, they will draw up a, a, a notice in the Federal Register that places that organization on the entity list. And I have to admit, in most cases, you don't get it on the first try unless you can show that that organization is directly involved in some type of proliferation activity or illicit diversion. Um, just having the rumors <laughs> is not going to be enough. So while it isn't a criminal investigative process um, where you have to prove it beyond a reasonable doubt, you still have to show that it's more likely than not that the activities of this company are, or person are contrary to U.S. national security or foreign policy. I see more and more attention is being paid in the um, social networks and trainings on proliferation. Um, why do you think is that? Why the current uh, political environment, does the current political environment requires that? What has changed in, in your, or did anything change in general? I think the, the change isn't so much um, in policy, but in recognition. Um, the ZTE and Huawei cases really brought these, what used to be very arcane export compliance issues onto the front pages. Um, I never had someone ask me about the unverified list before this week, <laughs> um, other than people who were in the business. I've never had, or I've never seen in, in my 30 years with, uh, in the export control community, uh, it's been rare that stories uh, get out and proliferate, if you'll pardon my use of the term, <laughs> uh, 
outside of the international trade community and draw the interest of you know major news networks it's 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 kind of rare and i think part of the uh positive side of this for those of you in the compliance community is at least at cocktail parties you'll you'll not have to explain what you do for a living <laughs> as much <laughs> But it also, um, I've always felt that export compliance is a should be much more holistic. Um, there, the the way I've told companies, or you know, especially company export compliance officers, uh, that what what I think their bosses need to know is that it's not necessarily the the export control reasons that they should be doing enhanced or or at least any due diligence prior to, to sale and export. They should be doing this for the bottom line because they should be looking to cultivate repeat customers. And of course, our, our friends who could end up in a jail somewhere are not going to be repeat customers. <laughs> You're going to want to protect your intellectual property because in some cases, the reason the national security or foreign policy objective of the United States is to protect the U.S. Uh, supply chain. And if you're doing business with a company that is more than happy to take your technology and replicate it and sell it as their own technology, you probably want to be careful. Um, the, the, you know, and I'm not just trying to make it just a financial question, but the financial part of trade compliance, the understanding the transactions and the risks and the potential rewards, of course, are very important to not just the compliance team, but to sales and to finance and to pretty much the, the health of the company. The, the better you know your customers, you know, the, the more things you can sell to them. And I have to admit, I've never been a business person. But I sat in, when I was working overseas, I sat in the commercial section of the embassy. So I got to meet and talk with people that were involved in international trade, both from the host nation and from the United States. And I got to see how the uh, commercial specialists worked with these companies to uh, get into markets. And I have to say, I completely underestimated the complexities of export outside of trade compliance. <laughs> And it's, it's fascinating to see how, how many um, things you need to think about before deciding to enter a market or when trying to expand your presence in a market. If you take the information that you're learning from, these, um, from, from, from the sales side of learning who the potential customers might be, pushing that information over to the compliance folks, they can dig a little deeper from their angle. And then they can add that information to the file. And then the finance folks can dig a little deeper on their side and add that information to the file. And now everyone can see a holistic version of this company in, in, in one place. And the sales folks can understand better whether or not this is going to be something they should be spending their time on. The finance folks can see if this company really can afford what they're, what they're saying they want to buy. And the compliance folks can make sure they're not going to use it to build a nuclear weapon. Everybody's happy. Everybody's doing business, right? 
It, it sounds so perfect. I so wish it was like that. <laughs> yes. <laughs> my, my, uh, my compliance utopia. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But on that note, just to say that, in my opinion, to be also a good compliance officer in any capacity of compliance, no matter if you review AML transaction um, sanctions or whatever, is to understand at least basic business and finance. Why? Because you as uh, the, I will not mention how complex trade finance is. This is something I want to learn somehow, someday, maybe potentially, but um, that's super complex. Uh, the, the whole way how the international trade goes and from a financial institution perspective. But to be good in some kind of business and having the business sense and understanding um, of something, if it really can be used by that company, for what reason it would be used? Does it make sense? Is this a red flag actually that you're looking at? Um, this is so important. So I think that one of the most important things that compliance officers should focus on is to really understand business and the business sense behind certain transactions and certain exports. This relates to proliferation and dual use goods, uh, relates to trade-based money laundering, to, I don't know, probably there are, uh, the invoicing schemes like under-invoiced, over-invoiced stuff. For example, you should know that um, something small does not cost $10, but $1, the fair price, you know, why it's overpriced. Um, I just don't have an item in mind that that's one dollar inflation, you know. <laughs> I I have to admit, I um uh, uh, trade based money laundering to me uh, always seemed like what took them so long to identify this. <laughs> it it's uh, it, you know we we would almost I would say on 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 a fairly regular basis maybe one in three cases you would see um, documentation provided for an export that dramatically decreased the value of a transaction. And for years, especially back in my customs days, a lot of people made the explanation of, oh, we undervalue it because we don't want it to be stolen. <laughs> that that the, the sophisticated hijackers of, of commercial shipments were looking at the documentation and only stealing things that were highly valuable always seemed a little bit sketchy to me. But that was always the argument. And right. as an investigator, as, as I then started to kind of peel the, the, the onion layers away on some of these cases, I realized that, you know, it wasn't just so that the items wouldn't be considered high value. It was that the items wouldn't be considered um, uh, uh, expensive enough to require an import duty on the other side. And mm. um, we, we at, uh, you know, in, in my criminal investigator days of the New York field office of uh, export enforcement, we started charging on undervaluing using the, the appropriate, you know, customs uh, uh, resources and, 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 and legislation and regulations. And uh, many other um, cases started to be made uh, with those charges included. And I think it's important because you know, aside from trade-based money laundering, if your company is going out and valuing things and then having to pay the duty, but your competitors aren't, that's not fair. And I have to 
admit, I know the world is not fair, but I'd like it to at least be fair enough that a company that is honest isn't going to lose out to a company being dishonest. Yeah. Another issue with this over under invoicing thing is people do crazy things to obscure taxation uh, and, you know, having at least the VAT being paid off. And a lot of cash is being circulated under the table um, to balance off something that you're writing on the contract of sale as um, 1,000 euros, but you pay 10,000 for it, you know, just so that you don't pay taxes. So that's not only not fair for the sellers, but it also creates um, problems with corruption, um, source of money you are being as investigator thrown off uh, so many leads um, from where the money comes and there is always something shady going on <laughs> somewhere so yeah uh, and at uh, the end of the day when when governments uh, you know aren't collecting the level of taxes that they need to actually provide services or you know or run the country you know, you have to start to wonder how how long do we how long is it going to take us to start deciding that this is you know a national security issue at that level? Mm-hmm. That you know the you know how much how much money does the government have to lose to fraud uh, before people start taking it seriously? That I, I'd like I'd love to figure out what that number is. Yeah, I, I uh, I'm not good with um, calculating. Uh, <laughs> oh, I'm I'm no math student. If I if I were better in math, I'd be an, I'd have been an engineer. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. Um, so before, uh, since we're progressing with time, um, and it, at compliance time, we have a favorite question for the end of the discussion, and that's predictions for the future. So. Using your crystal ball, can you please tell us how do you see the future in compliance, um, experts, controls, and um, sanctions, maybe? So I think I'm going to talk a little bit about how I think that lists are both helping us and hurting us, and how that is going to translate to the future of export controls. So I used to um, I used to get a lot of flack from the the licensing officers that I worked with because I would frequently say in meetings or at, at gatherings that I thought list based export controls um, should become a thing of the past and that someday we will rely entirely on end use end user verification where we would take the, the information that we can gather now online and in the real world about the potential end uses and end users of U.S. goods and technology, which frankly are rather broad to begin with, and focus on that problem rather than spending time deciding what level, at what level does this microchip start to become a national security threat. Frankly, 1940s technology built nuclear weapons. So if, if we're worried about proliferation and we're worried about supporting illicit WMD networks, they can do a lot of this stuff on the cheap. And 
I think by focusing on particular goods and technologies, um, you know, I mean, I don't think it's quite giving them a roadmap of what to look for, but it's certainly allowing those corrupt individuals and organizations in the supply chain to know what to charge more for when they, when they are diverting it. So end use and end user in the United States system, um, we are heavily reliant on putting um, bad actors on lists. And we're also now starting to put companies suspected of connections to illicit end uses and end users onto lists that are just for, um, for, for public knowledge. It doesn't add anything. It doesn't put in a license requirement, but it does put a company on notice that if they're going to do business with that company, they have to make sure that the items that they're selling them aren't going to be diverted to uh, 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 an unauthorized military end use, for example. And the problem with these lists are cross-cultural in nature. How do you make sure you have the name listed right if the name is transliterated correctly from the native language? If it's uh, a language, um, oh, let's just say like Chinese, where the characters are tonal in nature. So if you say it in one tone, it means one character. And if you say it in another tone, it means another character. How are we making sure that companies aren't playing games with that so that their identifications are obscured? Again, this all comes down to as much as I would love to be able to put a list together of all of the bad guys and say, you know, you can't do business with them. That doesn't work because they can change their name. <laughs> they can obscure their location. They can do a lot of things to do one-off transactions or in some cases continue to do business um, under the radar. So I am a big fan of asking questions. The majority of my government career, um, probably the entirety of my government career, was involved with asking people what they were doing. <laughs> and there is a, a definite power in having people that are familiar with export regulations and familiar with the uses of the goods and technology that their companies are making in asking questions so that they can prevent these things from happening at the front end, rather than having to rely on a government agency to come in and clean up. Because if we make a criminal case and put someone in jail and fine a company a million dollars, that means we failed already. And this is slamming the barn door shut after the horse has escaped. That doesn't help anyone. Whereas, if the trade compliance and, and more broadly, the, the compliance world can get out in front of these issues and ask the hard questions so that they can get the answers that would allow them to do business with legitimate companies, but screen out the problem children and not do business where they can't verify the ultimate end user and end use, it makes it safer. It makes it more profitable to do business in a particular area. And hopefully keeps us from waking up one morning to find yet another uh, illicit program 
um, being you know, threatening us. Dan, thank you very much for this view. I think that paints a beautiful picture for the future. And um, let's, um, let's hope uh, the companies and government can work better together to build such program that is not as list oriented and it's more proactive and attack this issue. Well, thank you for having me on. I could talk about this all day. So and I can listen can all day. <laughs> <laughs> for sure. Yeah, I, I think uh, there should be a follow-up episode here. I will book uh, three hours. We can break it out in series, maybe. <laughs> uh, welcome to hour 42 of trade <laughs> compliance talks. <laughs> Yeah, thoughts about compliance, trade compliance, and everything going on in the world right now. I mean, how can we cover that in one episode? It's not possible. Very true. Very true. So tune in, folks. Keep coming back. <laughs> Stay tuned for episode two. <laughs> oh, th thank you so much for the great discussion. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Compliance Time. If you like this episode, remember to give us a five-star review on your platform. You can also support our work on Buy Me A Coffee. Don't forget to subscribe on our website for the monthly newsletter and check out our blog. Bye-bye.